The Christian Atheist is also available on YouTube, and you will find other great content, including the literature I frequently refer to, on our Simple Gifts podcast. If you find our content helpful, consider supporting us through PayPal at RomansChapter5 at Comcast.net. Welcome to The Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode 37, The Bad Hegel. As I attempt to present my view of Hegel as the origin of where we went wrong in this episode of The Christian Atheist, I would like to emphasize that there is something arbitrary in the choice of Hegel as this point of origin. In modern Western philosophy, there is nothing that is really novel. The distinctions are mostly of emphasis rather than quality. Most of Hegel can be found in ancient Greek philosophy. Idealism has a long history back to Plato, and process metaphysics predates Socrates and Heraclitus, as Hegel himself acknowledges. Also, although I am an opponent, there is, as I've said, a great deal to admire, a great deal that is right in Hegel and in his followers, even those with whom I most violently disagree. In fact, I would claim that Hegel and the prescriptive Hegelians have taken valuable traditional philosophical insights, but inverted and progressively perverted the value hierarchy that contextualized them. I view Hegel as my primary philosophical, even my spiritual opponent. As a Christian and fan of Aristotle's ethics, I see life as a balancing act an attempt to walk in the way that is truth, within the divine structure, within being. This path is usually found at the center, at what T.S. Eliot calls the still point of the turning world, not the extremes, though the extremes too have a role to play. But neither arrest nor movement and do not call it fixity where past and future are gathered. Neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. From T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. My critiques of Hegel then, should be understood in light of this commitment. Hegel, I believe, set up the world for a radical extremism, an imbalanced value inversion from which we have been unable to recover, even though he was not in most ways himself an extremist. This series on the Christian atheists is devoted to explaining where and why Hegel went wrong which I hope and pray may serve as a roadmap to putting things right again. The foundation of bad Hegel is the denial of transcendence, or alternatively stated, his embrace of imminence to the exclusion of transcendence, the collapse of being into reason. This is the fundamental inversion and imbalance. From this error flows every other problem. 
I contend that Hegel's denial of transcendence represents the practical atheism, in distinction from the creedal atheism of the new atheists, we pointed to in our series on defining atheism. When we deny transcendence, any notion of God becomes practically irrelevant, regardless of our creedal commitments. This is the form of atheism that pervades our age, which has seduced our academic and cultural institutions and is destroying our society. Imminent spirituality as a substitute for God takes many forms, but its distinguishing mark is that it, quote, frees us to adopt unrestrained by truth, reason, and logic in the transcendental sense, an infinite variety of creeds and ways of life. Western theism and the Greek tradition, Plato and the Neoplatonists, combine immanence and transcendence. God, being, is both, a paradox reflecting the incarnation itself. The very opacity of this paradox, our inability to penetrate it, to understand it, is emblematic of the position itself and of our relationship to God. His imminence, thus our knowledge of and relation to him, is predicated on his transcendence. Hegel will have none of this. In his collapse of metaphysics into epistemology, Hegel sees only a monistic metaphysics, as Benchavenga makes clear in this previously quoted statement. When Hegel claims that being is the concept, or is spirit, he is not just saying that being is dynamic. He is saying that being is dynamism. His view is not that there is always change going on, but rather that there is nothing other than change. Some, among them Kant, have argued that because there is change, we must be able to think of something that is permanent through it. And of course, we might eventually convince ourselves, if we are Kant, that this absolutely permanent thing, or matter, is an unrealizable rational ideal. But here the important thing is, Hegel does not share any such conclusion or ideal. There is, for him, nothing to which spiritual movement happens. Spiritual movement is the whole. End quote. Transcendence is the radically other, the ideal. So high, perfect, and exalted as to be unreachable, unknowable. It is that to which reason must conform. Its logic is either or, a logic of clear boundaries and definitions, of plurality and individuated unity. Imminence, by contrast, is the self-contained, that which allows of nothing outside itself, and thus identifies self and other, emphasizes unity over plurality, 
The logic of immanence is both and, a logic of combination and not exclusion. To grasp Hegel's denial of transcendence, it is important to understand its historico-philosophical context. The Enlightenment project produced an arrogant scientism, a hubristic faith in reason's capacity to know everything, to lay bare the clockworks of the universe, to clarify all opacity, to banish all ignorance. Scientism espouses a materialist imminence. If we can understand the fundamental building blocks of the world, along with their trajectories, everything can be known and predicted. Kant rightly feared that this faith in the mechanistic materialist universe would undermine all that humanity held dear, including ethics and freedom of the will, through a rational determinism. His critique of pure reason was written to forbid to reason such unlimited insight, to limit the pretensions of reason. In many ways, Kant is vindicated by the quantum revolution, though I would argue that it was Hegel who prepared the ground for its discovery in many important ways. Such rabbit trails as this, however, will have to wait for another time. Knowledge, says Kant, requires two things, intuitions and concepts. Intuitions come to us through our senses and resolve into things, into meanings and values by means of concepts. Both are necessary for any instance of knowledge. Quoting from the Critique of Pure Reason, Our knowledge springs from two fundamental sources of the mind. The first is the capacity of receiving representations, receptivity for impressions. The second is the power of knowing an object through these representations, spontaneity of concepts. Through the first, an object is given to us. Through the second, the object is thought in relation to that representation, which is a mere determination of the mind. Intuition and concepts constitute, therefore, the elements of all our knowledge, so that neither concepts without an intuition in some way corresponding to them, nor intuition without concepts can yield knowledge. End quote. Immanence is this level of knowledge. The phenomenological tradition speaks of our knowledge of things as intentionality, the directedness of consciousness, and the objects with which our experience is peopled, intentional objects. This experience is imminent because it only contains what is given to us in combination with that which we ourselves contribute. This direct, intuitive experience of the world is Kant's empirical realism. We have, in previous episodes of The Christian Atheist, called this the ontological level, following Sartre. 
Kant also recognizes, however, that there is another level to rational thought. We postulate a thing in itself, in addition to intentional objects, as the cause of our actually receiving, being given something through sensation. This thing in itself is not known. It stands outside us, in opposition to us. In a word, it is transcendent, unknowable, though it is also a causal factor for knowledge. This level of analysis corresponds to what we have called the metaphysical level in Sartre, and this is why Kant calls himself both an empirical realist and a transcendental idealist, as suggested in the quote from Benchevenga above. In order to claim knowledge, we must be able to explain that knowledge by reference to an unknowable, transcendent ideal. This is Kant's transcendental idealism. We can believe in this reality, but we cannot know it. We can conceptualize it, but we cannot realize it. We can live as if it is real. And, in fact, all of us do. And in doing so, exercise our own empirical realism. This is common sense reality. It is a fundamental axiom of faith that our experience of the world is real. At this empirical level, we live in a world of real things. Chairs, people, birds, and books. But each of these things is also infinitely more and other than our knowledge of it. Each points beyond itself to what is ideal. This chair is not just a chair, but a collection of particular and individual materials and subcomponents, from wood and plastic all the way down to the subatomic level. Indeed, at our present level of scientific understanding, all the way down to quantum fields, an infinite determination that transcends our conceptual grasp of this chair. That infinity, that thing in itself, transcends our knowledge. But our knowledge is predicated upon it. Knowledge, then, stands upon a belief structure that makes sense of experience, contextualizes it. Reason is, thus, fundamentally limited in what it can justifiably claim, as being in itself remains opaque, stands as transcendent limit to reason. Absolute knowledge is thus impossible to human reason by its very nature, its inherent limits. While reason may grasp imminence, it finds its limits in transcendence, that which it cannot penetrate, which it can only encounter. Hegel sought, at staggering cost, for reason to be released from these Kantian boundaries, to restore to the Enlightenment scientism its godlike pretensions to knowledge. His tool for achieving this goal is his dialectical logic, and, quoting Benchevenga's Hegel's dialectical logic, because of what tool it is, 
it will pervade and appropriate every subject matter, reveal it as conceptually structured through and through, indeed, as nothing other than conceptually structured. End quote. If we cannot know the transcendent being in itself, then we will deny the transcendent, deny the subject-object duality, the distinction between thinking and what we think, between experience and what we experience. Hegel collapses being into knowing, dissolves contingency in necessity. We must, that is, make imminence the sole sphere of reality. But the being of this imminent reality is not empirical, as in Kant. For Kant, the real world is what we encounter, the things our experience reveals to us. For Hegel, this world and these things are phenomenal, not real. Hegel's metaphysics is his logic. His logic is his metaphysics. All being, all reality, is process with no residue. And the process is reason. One of the costs of this move, and we will encounter many others, is the loss of any special status for the avatars of rationality for humanity. This attitude has progressively pervaded the consciousness of the Western world, most notoriously among leftist environmentalists who claim that human beings are cancers on the planet. We human beings, contra Aristotle and the other Greeks, are not unique because we are rational, but rather mere instances, placeholders, determined moments in the ongoing pageant of the rational universe, and that universe might well be better off without us. We are cogs in the dialectical machine, and thus the question of our value, like so much else, has been relativized. We are no longer, as in Kant, ends, absolute values to be treasured and respected, but mere means to achieve spirit's self-actualization. The implications of this demotion of humanity will play out as we continue our examination of Hegel and his followers. Another consequence of the denial of transcendence is the death of truth. As there stands at the very basis of this denial in Hegel a structure of self-deception, an instance of Sartrean bad faith, of knowingly lying to oneself in an attempt to represent human experience as its own denial. This deception can be believed, but not even Hegel can live it. C.S. Lewis points out in Surprised by Joy, quote, Idealism can be talked, and even felt. It cannot be lived. The most universal critique of Hegelian philosophy is its logical, note here that we are using Aristotelian, not dialectical logic, its logical impossibility, since declaring that all is imminence requires a transcendent perspective on imminence. It requires, that is, that Hegel sit in 
transcendence, that he occupy God's seat, a position forbidden by the very structure of his philosophy. Hegel, like all other phenomenal beings, is a mere character within this universal story of spirit. He can no more take upon himself a position external to the story than Romeo and Juliet can be Shakespearean scholars. Hegel's claim to God's position is precisely the sort of arrogant self-deception that Socrates warned of in the Apology. Quote, And surely it is the most blameworthy ignorance to believe that one knows what one does not know. End quote. If immanentism is correct, our world is a story without a storyteller. And each of us is merely a character inside the drama. We can play out our individual roles. We can act within the drama. But we cannot be the universal narrator, nor pretend to the insights of the author. No matter how self-contradictory, this universal perspective has become a foundational article of faith in contemporary scientism yet it leaves itself nowhere to stand. Who are these limited creatures who claim unlimited knowledge of the whole? And from whence do they make these ex-cathedra claims? Transcendence is not so easily banned, it seems, no matter how successfully we deceive ourselves into believing in the death of God. I am a Christian, with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and remember... You can have your religious cake and eat it, too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian. <laughs>